bandwidth for the ZA Dev Chat podcast is provided by cloudafrica.net. Do you need high-performance cloud servers that are fast, secure, and reliable? Get your server up and running in five minutes. Check out cloudafrica.net. This episode of the ZA Dev Chat podcast has been produced and edited by Michael McDonald. Welcome to episode 11 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. My name is Stephen McDonald, and tonight we are just doing a general recap and the feedback we've received about the podcast, discuss plans we've got for the podcast going forward, and then just general geek chat, I suppose. There's no real set topic for this. Um, so panel tonight is myself, uh, Peter Charmeseis is back. Hello, yeah. And Len Weinsier. How's it? Cool. Um, yeah, so I just want to start off with some feedback. Um, we are in the process of moving to our own website and moving off of the Podomatic host that we've been using. Um, I was actually forced to pay Podomatic money because <laughs> uh, our, our size, uh, our, our uh, storage size has actually gone over the, the initial limits. But part of this was actually um, got some detailed um, analytics regarding where people are downloading our episodes from. And what was really fascinating is that over the last month, we've had between 300 and 400 downloads from within South Africa. Awesome. And we've had over 600 downloads from France. That's interesting. That's yeah. Kind we of love you, France. <laughs> so, to people in France that are are going crazy, um, hi. That was really weird, but cool. Uh, so that was unexpected and awesome. Mm. Bon when I need trivia, we we. That's pretty much all I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. The thing that I found interesting, uh, oh, the, the initial thought that I had when I saw that is I thought, oh, you know, people have just got custom DNS set up and it's just reporting as it is in France. The thing is that according to the website, it's distributed like all over France and it's not just, you know, the like the Paris, you know, and, and you know, main cities. It's all over France. So, Do, do you think it's because of the We Think Code episode? That's actually a really good point. I don't know. Mm. Um, it might be. It might be. I oh. didn't. I actually didn't put those together. Um, oh right. But yeah, I found that. I found that pretty interesting. But yeah, take up on the podcast has been a lot better than what I expected, um, which is awesome. So thank you to everybody for listening. It kind of makes me feel good. <laughs> um, yeah, so so going just carrying on with the theme of the new websites and whatever, we'll be moving everything over to the website that is being provided by Cloud Africa, which is just zadev.co.za. Oh, fantastic! Um, Thank you so much, Cloud Africa. Well done, well awesome. done. It's a pleasure, man. And then the the big challenge is to try and get the RSS feed um, in iTunes updated. So I've sent a mail to Podomatic to figure out how to do it off of their platform. I know what needs to happen in the RSS, but I mean, I don't have control over the RSS feed because it's published by Podomatic. So we'll figure that out. Um, the last resort scenario 
will just be basically deleting the podcast off of iTunes, which I really don't want to do, and then resubmitting the podcast to iTunes with a new URL. The problem then is that people have to resubscribe, remember which episodes they listen to. If anybody's posted links like our Twitter account, those links will be broken, and it's just a nightmare. So I'm hoping to avoid that. Um, if we can migrate it across, that'll be that'll be. Yeah, they, as far as I understand, they just have to do a redirect, don't they? So there's a part of the um, RSS feed. There's actually a tag that you put in the in the the, the RSS structure mm. that contains that redirect, which then goes and updates it on iTunes site. So it should be really really easy. I just haven't been able to find that section on Podomatic. So it could be that I am just blind and stupid uh, or, you know, it's hidden by Podomatic to try and stop people from leaving the platform. So, yeah. All right. Any feedback from your guys' side? Um, well, I just reading a lot of uh, stuff on how people are running podcasts. I think one thing that would be cool is if we could live stream uh, the podcast, you know, then everybody could jump on Slack and have a chat, you know, sort of a back channel while we're having a chat with whomever. So, you know, sort of more audience participation. That would be a very interesting thing to do. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. So that's kind of what we were doing with the Google Hangouts initially. Yeah. And if we've got everybody recording their own audio and sending it through, then we can definitely do that again. Because um, I've actually been checking. I've suddenly had people subscribing to my YouTube accounts. I couldn't figure out why. And, I mean, the first few episodes of the podcast were done via Hangouts um, from there. So I think it's something we can definitely do. The downside to that um, is that we can't – so the ads will have to, like, live read. We can't do the ads separately and then pull them in. Mm. Um, but I mean, those are challenges that we can get around. Um, and I, I kind of like doing the live thing. That was the one thing I didn't like about moving to Skype. But it, yeah, if we're all recording, then that, that whole problem just falls away. We just have to try and get guests to please record. Um, and if they don't want to record, we can just rip their audio from, from the YouTube vid. So there's really not that much of an issue. I'm sure we can get the guys on Slack to hack something together for us on our server. <laughs> yes, little Slack monkeys work for me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do realize, like, people listen to this podcast. <laughs> I will so edit. No, I'm not going to edit that out. I say now that I'll edit it out, but I won't. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. Um, Peter, any any feedback from you, dude? No, not really. I've I've really been enjoying the podcast um, and the feedback that I've seen in Slack as well as uh, from other sources have been have been great. And I mean, um, this is just the beginning. Um, it's only going to get better, which is which is quite a like an exciting thing to be part of. And who would have thought two and a half months ago that we'd still be doing it two and a half months afterwards? Yeah, I must admit, I thought it was going to be like a one timer thing. <laughs> I must say, when, when we said at the start of the last show, like episode 10, I kind of thought like, it's like a tiny milestone. Like mm. Our next milestone is like episode 50, mm. which is so far away. <laughs> yeah. And so you get there and you realize, hey, whoa, episode 1000, here we come. 
<laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm drunk, so... <laughs> Whatever, dude. <laughs> so we had uh, an interesting conversation at work today, and I said to somebody, oh, this guy was on this podcast yeah, fairly recently. It was like a few weeks ago. Just just go check it out. Um, and yeah, th- that episode was like four months ago. And I was like, holy crap. Okay. So time seems to move pretty quickly. And that podcast in question had like 25 episodes already. And they, they're also on a weekly cadence. So it was... Um, I was quite surprised how quickly time had gone. So I'm sure we'll be heading, you know, towards episode 50 soon enough. Yeah, to do a thousand episodes, that would be 20 years, man. Just do three or four episodes a week. (laughs) Yeah, look, we better get cracking, man. We've got to get cracking. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, if not, why not, right? All right, okay. What are we going to talk about today? Now that I'm all warmed up and stretched out, got coffee, let's go. There was one. There was one other thing I wanted to add with the feedback side, um, and I can't remember what it is now. So I'll come back to that later. Um, yeah. So I, I just first of all, I just want to say thanks to people, um, especially the likes of Rob McLean, that have given a lot of um, feedback and critique on certain things at the end, like every single episode that goes out almost, uh, you know, Rob pings me and he says, you know, this, this was cool. I don't know if this worked as well. And I, I really do appreciate the feedback because without that feedback, you know, we're not really going to improve much. And at the same time, we've actually had guys almost evangelizing the podcast um, to their companies. And it's, it's been great. We, we've got non dev people, listening to the podcast, which is awesome. I didn't really think it would appeal to a non-dev audience, but the university episode from last week actually piqued the interest of a number of people that, that aren't devs, and that was that, that was pretty cool. Oh, dear. Based on our discussion on Slack today, uh, you have to be very careful about what you consider to be dev and non-dev. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's... it's what, do you, what do you mean, Peter? One of those things. Uh, remember the conversation that happened in Slack today, where the um, where the conversation led to pretty much like the Do you need a university degree to be a developer? And mm. it turned out that um, we couldn't agree on what the term developer actually meant, which was part of the problem. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, going over it for the audience, so the people can sort of catch up with us. Yeah. Yeah, it's it. It was always going to be an episode that was I. It's it's it was always going to be a polarizing episode. Um, well, we, I think we're definitely going to do round two on that because I think there's a lot of things in that episode that we we sort definitely. of opened the door on and uh, definitely. You know, and then you know, about. I think we need to you know get other people involved as well. So we'll definitely so have the same have the same question that's posed, but you know, get different people in. Obviously. Different people have different opinions, different experiences that we can learn from. So it'll be it'll be cool. I think it's one of those those things we can definitely chat about again later this year, and then possibly next year, and maybe actually try and get students that have recently qualified um, or, rec- or recently graduated. I, I don't I don't think qualified is the right word. Sort of interview them live on air. Yeah, yeah. We'll get um, we'll get Leslie on, and he'll go. Do you know what an interface is? 
<laughs> so the other thing we can do is, I mean, I know that a lot of the universities have these kind of open days where they've got the students there and they've got prospective um, employers come and chat to the students or whatever. And I'd actually love to take a mic to one of those events and walk around, chat to the employers, find out what the employers are looking for, and then kind of watch the reaction of, of the graduates that are standing there listening to this, um, you know, and chat to them again. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot we can do with it. Um, mm. So the, the other thing that is coming up, that's a feedback-wise. There are two things coming up in the next mm, six weeks that's going to be quite different. And those are going to be our first live recorded, um, not quite episodes, but live recorded interviews. So I'll be doing interviews at Build jo Johannesburg and then at JSNSA. Awesome. Um, that's going to be an interesting experience. And I, I think that uh, – our new editor is going to have fun editing out <laughs> background noise with that. So, yeah. Um, Len, there was something else you were going to say just now, and I cut you off by mistake. Um, have no, we it's covered no problem. The... I've, I've just got a lot of feedback, from, especially from that university episode, and it ties into the We Think Code thing. Uh, you know, people are kind of coming out of school or... You know, maybe they've got a job um, and they're, they're trying to figure out a way into IT. They're trying to understand, you know, what it is that kind of is in demand, how, how to begin, uh, what's important, yeah, whether they should do a university degree or not, you know, should they make that kind of time commitment. Um, my my son is 18 now, so next year he, you know, he's looking to do something and I played him a piece of the podcast. He was very interested, you know, just especially basic things like, the different faculties at universities, like that, you know, a lot of people just don't know, and I think we've got a lot of feedback from from people around that, just wanting to know more about kind of the process, the ins and outs. You know, I've been talking to Joshua about that uh, continuing professional development course that they've got going at Fitz, and then being able to convert that into a master's in engineering. That sounds like a really interesting option for people. Who've, who've got sort of 10 plus years of experience and want to, you know, up their game maybe and do, do something else. So it it may even be just a theme that we keep touching on every now and again and, and uh, have tips and ideas on how to how to progress, how to like sort of develop your career, I guess, is, is a, what it's all about, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Um, and it's quite cool. I, I didn't realize your son was on the on the brink of heading to university. So, you know, I well, he's, he on, got... he's on the brink of something. We're not entirely sure what it is. No. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, as, as long as there's useful, as as long as people are getting good info from it, and, and maybe not good info, as long as we're we're challenging people's, you know, preconceived. Conceptions, well, conception—that—that's the wrong <laughs> the word. Preconceived conceptions, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, perceptions, preconceived perceptions. Um, yeah, that—that—that that, that, that to me would is is great. Um, so the other thing I want to raise feedback-wise that I forgot just now is again thanks to Rob, um, uh, one of the listeners um, down in Durban, and judging by the email address, it is a university student or somebody who's very recently left university, um, actually dropped Rob a mail and said, look, I've been listening to the show and I'm worried that I'm going to become one of the developers that's kind of been 
discussed between episode one and honestly i can't remember episode one that well and the university episode um and they were actually asking rob for like extra resources or what they could do to improve themselves to not be one of you know not quite a dark matter developer but what they can do to almost set themselves apart and the fact that we've even if it's just that one person even if it's just that one person that has reached out that is now making an effort to you know that wants to be a better dev i'm so happy i'm so thrilled with that mm. that to me was was quite was quite awesome yeah um i don't know i don't know if you guys want to quickly run through some of the episode ideas we've got for the next while or should we keep that as as a big secret no, let's let's keep that as a surprise for people. I mean, that's our kind of uh, work in progress. I think you know. I think it's uh, one one of the things I think we're having to get to grips with here is how much planning and uh, structure we're going to need going forward with this podcast. You know, I'd really like a way to have a place for people to give us feedback as a group. Yes, yeah, so maybe we can put that up on the site, um, and then also just lining up people, trying to book them and. You know, getting them all available at the right time, load shedding and all the rest of it. That's, you know, the logistics that are involved. I think we're going to really have to uh, start uh, putting pens to paper there and making a, more of an effort going forward. But I'd like to keep it as a surprise for people because uh, I think some of them have been uh, very interesting when they came out. Like the We Think Code one, people didn't uh, know about it. And when they heard it, it was great. Like, wow, that's really nice stuff. Mm. And yeah, that episode kind of got published twice. <laughs> and um, I actually I'm just curious now, just to check the numbers now. So that is definitely been our most popular po um, um, episode. That that so surprisingly, the university episode has generated the most conversation with people that you know that I know. Um, however, the We Think Code episode just kind of blew up. So at last count. We're looking at around 150 downloads for, for episode nine, which was the fixed version after I stuffed up the timing. Um, and that was, that was really, really cool. Mm. And I actually got to meet Arlene today. She was at, um, at one of the clients that I work at today, and she was chatting to some of the higher-ups there. So uh, I quickly popped my head in at the start of the meeting just to quickly – you know, shake her hand and go, hi, I'm Stephen. Completely confused until I said the dude from the podcast. And then she was like, oh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> so it's always weird meeting somebody mm. um, that you've only spoken to online. But that was really Making was really waves cool. across Africa. Yeah. Making you, waves you, across Santon. <laughs> you, sound, you sound much more handsome than you are, Stephen. I know, right? Yeah. You've got a you've you know, got a face for radio, I think is the same. Exactly, I do, <laughs> I do. But you see, I'll put it down to this microphone. Yeah. So, so Kev, if, if if you're listening, thank you for making me sound good with this microphone. I promise <laughs> I'll give it back to you at some stage. <laughs> so, quick shout out to Yeti who makes this microphone. Well mm. done, Yeti. You guys make a really good microphone. <laughs> So, yeah, I've also been told that I have a, a, a sexy podcast voice by Rob. So, hi, Rob. I love you. <laughs> That's, uh, it's, we're going off the rails here, guys. That's too much information. <laughs> yeah, there are, no, there are no real rails tonight, so it's okay. Mm. 
Okay, so, Stephen, so, what's the question you wanted to ask uh, Len? So, I love making fun of Lisp. And although I've played around with Go a little bit, I haven't played around enough to actually do stuff. So, in my mind, I'm a web developer. Right. I've done one or two console apps. Um, but 95% of my career has been web development. So looking at languages like Go, Lisp, Haskell, all of that stuff, what apps do you write with functional languages? Or, or do you do web apps with functional languages as well? Are they better suited to like infrastructure apps? So, so the stuff that you do at Cloud Africa, what, mm. what, what kind of, you know, I, I say apps, but let's say, what kind of problems are you solving using functional languages and why are they better than object-orientated languages? So we're just diving into the meat of the, the argument there. Um, maybe let's just take a like, kind of big step back. And um, you know, in, in your head, you say that you've, you've just been working purely on web apps as if that was somehow different from like not web apps. Maybe you just want to talk about that a bit. Like, in what sense for you is, is that different? So I think maybe I need to clarify it. So my, the 95% of my, of my work has been database-backed apps. So basically glorified CRUD apps. You know, Writing sure. data to a database, reading data from a database, updating and deleting. Sure, but, but you've got a, there is a server component, mm. right? Yes, yeah, there is. And, and, and if, I, if you're just, in the Microsoft world, that's something that's... Uh, running inside of IIS, inside a .NET container, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I, I was just, I mean, I know that WhatsApp is written on a functional language. I want to say it's Erlang. It is Erlang, yes. And, and I'm, I'm just curious to know, I mean, do they actually store our messages in a database? Or is it kind of like they just hand the messages over that get stored on your phone locally? Or <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I was just thinking about it in traffic yesterday because traffic mm. was horrendous. I was just thinking, you know, we always, I always chat to people about functional stuff and I get the idea, that, you know, immutable data and, you know, things well, let, are. Let's, let's maybe start from somewhere that we know, right? Well, let, let's just talk about. Uh, Object orientation, and I was chatting to uh, Benjamin on the um, on the Slack channel last night. And so, let's just kind of try and get some terms out of the way. Like, what is object orientation? Let's just be clear about that. What do you guys think object orientation is? Oh wow, I've just hit a blank. So, yeah. it, <laughs> so okay. So, so the the, re the reason I struggle with this is because I've pretty much only ever done object-orientated code. Mm. Um, even the JavaScript that I write, I do my best to write it in an object-orientated way, if I can... If okay, I but, can. but now if I said to you that mm. JavaScript is not object-orientated, yeah, like would that make it. sense to you? Yes. Why, yeah, why it, isn't it, it object-oriented? It's just the way the language was designed. You, you can write it in <laughs> no, a... What's, fun what's missing from JavaScript? You know, like that if you added it classes. to JavaScript? Oh, yes, classes. Okay. Classes is kind no, of what's missing. And, and yeah. what, what does a class kind of give you? What is a class? To me, it's just a container for, for logic. It's, just a, it, it's this, this object that does one specific thing and attempts to do it well. And you know. So, so there's, a, there's a subtle difference, right? But Well, not so subtle, but there's a difference between a class and an object, right? Yeah. Do, we've got objects in JavaScript. 
But we don't it's have classes, t- right? Correct. We we end up using objects as classes. Yeah. So so you know, there's a couple of things that we don't have in JavaScript. We don't have good encapsulation, right? Everything's kind of global. <laughs> Um, you, you do have sort of function scope, but you don't have like a bigger scope than the function. So on one level, you can think of a class as a place that gives you some kind of privacy. I can stick my code in this place, and I can tell, the, I can say to the language, whatever, only stuff that's in the same place can talk to that code, like private methods in a class, right? I've got this idea of encapsulation got this idea of things that happen inside a class versus things that happen outside of a class. Languages that have classes also uh, force you to think about two different worlds, right? They force you to think about the design world and the runtime world. Because at runtime, you're not really dealing with the classes as much as you are dealing with instances of those classes called objects. Uh Right? Okay, so... You've got encapsulation. Um, the second sort of major property of OO is inheritance. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you, you can extend things. Correct. Um, and the third thing is polymorphism. Yep. Okay, where you can do method overloading and things. Now, like some languages like Ruby struggle with the polymorphism side of things. They have a slightly different take. A bit more of a mix of uh, prototype, um, and uh, you don't really have the ability to do like normal sort of method overloading in in Ruby, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're happy. That's that's object orientation. We we do our encapsulation, our inheritance, and uh, we we've got some kind of polymorphism. Yeah. Um, all right, so now, like, let's contrast that with functional stuff. Like, what is what is functional? Any any takers? <laughs> so, so I've I've done functional code once at a code retreat um, with uh, I think it was Andreas, and my, my my brain was was kind of confused that I had a variable with information, but I couldn't change the information in the variable, and I kind of looked at him like. I don't like you right now. I'm scared. <laughs> you know, you're changing everything that's sacred to me. Um, and then I said to him, well, we can create a class. And he's like, this is functional. There aren't classes. Well, I could be getting that the wrong way around. now, But it was something like that. And I was just like, okay, I officially I'm lost right now. Mm. So, yeah. So, so I, I mean, we have to be quite like simple about it, really. We, we have, um, basic function, like a method in a class, right, is a function. The difference in, in functional languages, I mean, we'll get to the other differences, is that the function is a first-class citizen of the language. So, you know, in JavaScript, you can pass a function around. Okay, I, I, can, I can have a handle yeah, yeah. to this function. I can say, listen, go do something, and when you're finished, like, call this function. Mm. You know, so passing or, functions around as callbacks and that type of thing, yeah? Well, I can have an array of functions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can store them. I can have, uh, I can store functions inside variables. Okay, that's quite an interesting idea, yes, which I, which I don't really have in the object oriented world. I can't like 
kind of pull this method out of a class and pass it to you. I can give you the class or the, the object, and then you, know, you can call the methods on that object. So, you know, but I can't um, pass the, the function around by itself. So now we can get into all the esoteric math kind of stuff around functions. But ideally what you'd like is to have your function not really depend on the environment too much, right? You'd like to have the function just receive everything it needs in the parameters and then return something to you. Like a little black box, right? Now this is probably the biggest sort of fight that's going on between functional and OO, because in OO the idea is that the methods are quite leaky. They want to access the state inside the class, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the functions or the methods on the, in an OO system are inherently not um, well isolated. That's why I can't really pull the, the method out of an object and give it to you, because it needs the stuff that's inside that particular instance inside that object to actually work. So one of the first ideas of functional stuff is to try and write these kind of clean, pure functions, as they're called. So in other words, if I've got a function add, you know, it takes x and y and it adds them together and returns, you know, their sum, that function's always going to be the same for the same input. So always going to return the same output for the same input. And it's kind of... Yeah. Uh, it's also very important to note that um, when you're talking about especially like uh, pure functions, is that um, in like something like C sharp, um, which is which has got some functional um, functional components um, now with um, the lambdas, is the fact that um, they actually return values instead of voids, um, which uh, which is also uh, a problem. What do you mean? So, uh, for instance, um, if you have a function. Um, in a, or if you have a method in C sharp, uh, you could yeah. easily write a public void um, a method that does add, takes two parameters, and changes internal state. It actually, actually, you don't actually have to return anything. Right. No, I just wanted to just to note that. Mm. Okay, no, I understand what yeah. you're saying. So you, you you need to because you can't just store the state inside the class. You need to actually like return it at that point in time. Yep. Yeah, um, you know, so there is a view of functional stuff that it's kind of a little bit like Lego blocks. Like it's a little bit like a toy world because you're just writing these little things that take two numbers in and return one number. You know, so there is a kind of bunch of people who will who look down on functional languages for that. I, I don't know if you guys have come across that. It seems too simplistic sometimes. I haven't um, because the, the circles that I move in guys are now starting to experiment with functional mostly through um, languages like F sharp um, and they're absolutely falling in love with it and when I see the code that they're writing it it looks clean it looks concise but I I don't know I need to find the time to actually sit and do it because right now I'm really comfortable in in my little world and to go somewhere else where I need to to change my way of thinking completely um, is something that that you know pretty much terrifies the crap out of me. Yeah. Um, but I am I am looking at getting so for the last half of this year, I really want to um, learn Elixir this year, 
Um, and it seems like Elixir looks pretty cool. And there's a lot of web stuff that's done with it with the Phoenix. I think it's the Phoenix framework. Um, so, you know, I can, I can so, still so be in my... Let, let's, yeah? let's go slowly into it because I think, you know, if, if you understand some of the fundamentals around the different styles of these languages, then you can make a more informed choice about, you know, which language to, you know, perhaps try and learn and where your, your brain might be less hurt, shall we say, <laughs> at the end of the day. Awesome. You know, Let's do so, it. So, um, okay, so functions, we're trying to keep them pure, um, is, is the one idea around functional stuff. We can, we can treat functions as first-class citizens. You can get functional languages without immutable data structures. Okay, you can get OO languages with immutable data structures. So immutable data structures is a topic entirely on its own. Um, Languages like F Sharp and OCaml, you can choose optionally to to use um, immutable data structures if you want. All right, so uh, perhaps it's worthwhile to just spend a moment on immutable on immutability and what that what that really means. So, um, I'm Stephen. I'm just going to use you as a kind of sounding board, and, and Go for you, it. Know, you know, the, it's it's your journey in a way. So, what do you understand of uh, immutability? So to have to have data, I want to say in a state that you can't change. So you, my my idea of having immutable, uh, let's say an immutable collection, is we, I have a collection of information. I can traverse that collection, but I can't make changes to it. If I want to make changes to that data, that data needs to be read out, needs to be worked on, and then needs to be stored in a new collection. Once it's in this new collection, again, it can't be edited there. If I want to do something with that again, you know, so the, mm. I, in, in the case of I wanted to do some form of threaded application, I know I no longer need to worry about things overwriting each other. You know, this is the data. This is the state of the data, and it can't change. Mm. The only way for it to be for it to change is to be read, be worked on, to be put in a new structure. And once again, once it's in mm. this new structure, the data is essentially safe and can't be harmed. Right. That that's the the idea of immutability that I've got going on in my head. Yeah, it's. I I, I think the the trick with all the stuff is the functional stuff came before the OO stuff. You know, the functional stuff is very old, and it's really simple. Actually, it's it's, it's not as complicated as OO. And my experience was certainly that I had to do a lot of unlearning. You know, there were definitely moments where I went, oh oh my goodness, this is like so obviously simple. Except I'm trying to complicate it with you know classes and, and inheritance and private and all sorts of stuff um, you know and it's a lot of the times it's just not there in the functional language it's just not there in these immutable data structures they're just really really simple so it's interesting to hear you trying to explain it because you're saying here's a piece of data that can't change but when I want to change it you know if you can hear your language like I still want to change things I still you know the, the real world is is about change and, and I'm trying to capture that in my uh, program in my systems and you know I've got on my objects I've got set of methods that's what that's what happens something so happens in yeah. the world I, I call the set of method I capture that change right 
So, ba- so basically capturing like the flow of information and how it evolves or devolves, whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah, sure. Um, Somebody comes yeah. to the website and updates their postal address, right? You have to you have to capture that somewhere. Now, in an OO system, I've got you know an address class, and I find the right one. I've got an ORM or whatever. Get it out of the database. And I go through and say, hey, set you know the postal code to this. Set set the various uh, um, fields on the on the object to what the values are that the guy entered on the web form, and persist that to a database. Right? It's a very common thing that we do, uh, and that's the real world. We we can't lose that like feature of our system. So even you know if you're in Erlang or whatever, Stephen, you you still need to be able to do that, right? People are still writing messages to each other in WhatsApp, and the, the log of yep. messages is growing. Um, you know. Okay, so Peter, perhaps you want to jump in with your uh, idea of, of immutability. My idea of immutability is the fact mm. that once a once an initial state has been set, you can't change it. So, for instance, um, something like a. Uh, like an object that captures a state change, for instance, um, um, a customer relocated, um, the information contained in that can't change, will not change. It's set in stone. Um, that's right. my idea. Yeah. Okay, so um, the way I see it today, and I mean, of course, this is uh, going to change as we learn things, right? It's it's about values. So the the more useful word is values and not uh, data. So five, for example, five is a value, right? Five never changes. Five is just always going to be five. And to me, that was such a big moment when I understood that. Like if I want to, you know, have the total in a bank account be a hundred, then I just find the value 100, and that's the one that I use. But the 100 itself is a first-class citizen in, in these kind of functional, immutable worlds. I may reference different values, um, and that's fine. But the real key insight happened when I understood that when I have immutable data structures, I have the ability to talk about time. Now... <laughs> Like, that's something that's really kind of been missing before I had immutable data structures. Because when I can talk about time, I can say, what was the value before this event? What is the value after this event? And I have both those values, right? Because those values are just the values. They can't change. It was five. The guy deposited another five. It's now ten. You know, so yesterday the value was five. Today it's ten. That's just the kind of facts of the matter, right? Is this beginning to make a bit more sense to you, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, if I was modeling an account in an immutable world, I have to think about the time, like when was that value 5? Okay. Um, especially if I've got multiple threads. When, when the thread looks at the value, like what is that value? That's the value that it sees, when another thread comes along later on, after a deposit's been made, it sees a different value. Does that make a bit more sense? Yeah. Just as no, a slight sure. like shift in the way to, to think about it. I'm not... Uh, like In a way, you can almost imagine that all possible values exist, and I'm just going to reference the ones that are meaningful right now at this point in time. Yeah. So right now yeah. there's five rand in the bank account... And later on, I'll just change 
uh, you know, are kind of bind to a new value. I'm trying to use sort of mm. functional worlds here. You know, yeah. um, you know, underneath the covers with these immutable data structures, there are they're actually trees. So even if you have just a simple like value, like five. Underneath, there is a, a kind of tree structure, and they, they come from a chap called Philip Bagwell, who did a lot of work on functional data structures, that stores the different um, values over time. And if you look at languages like Clojure, which have some really nice um, high-level ability to deal with immutable data structures, um, there is really a way to reason about time in an application, which which turns out to be really, really useful. It's kind of something we always want to do. You know, what was the bank account value yesterday, for example? Okay. All right. Um, then I think the the next thing that makes uh, functional stuff slightly different is this idea of list comprehensions, um, where you know. Traditionally, in an OO language, I have a collection. I would grab a an iterator over that collection, you know, sort of pull the data out of the collection and do something with it. Perhaps update it as I'm going through that iterator. In in functional languages, I tend to think more along the lines of applying a function to a collection, sort of as a as a single operation. I can just simply say, filter this collection. Give me a new collection, but as the result of filtering the first collection, you know. Or I want to, um, you know, work out what the new interest rates are going to be. So I can map a function over a collection. In other words, run this function uh, for every value in that collection and give me a new collection based on the return values of that function at each point in the first function being called, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm with you. Yeah, so so I tend to get like much more concise and much more expressive, um, how can you say, bit, bits of code in a functional language because I can, I don't have to, I generally don't have for loops in a functional language. Does that make sense? So, so this is the part where I, I kind of start going, well, if you're if you're putting a filter on something, right? Internally, isn't it just doing a for loop? Yes, you're not coding it, but if you filter something, it needs to still traverse that collection. It needs to look at each one. It's not doing a for loop internally. No. Or is, or is that where my 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 understanding and my my little little safety bubble here is holding me back? I'm I'm afraid you're going to need to get the deep sea diving gear on. Um, it's it's pretty scary out there. Um, so just for example, um, Lisp itself, like a lot of the sort of initial words in Lisp, like CDR and CAR, were actually the assembly language instructions of a machine. Um, so there there has been a processor built that runs Lisp as its assembly language in the silicon. If if that even makes any kind of sense to you, I don't know. But what it means oh, that's is a, that's a little it's a little deep level for me because I've never worked at that level before. Which is going back to last week, kind of why I'm like I so wish I had gone to university at times. <laughs> sure, but you 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 understand what assembly language is, right? 
Yeah, so 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 I, the concept, yes, mm. completely. So you've got a CPU. It's got some registers. It's got access to memory. And um, mm-hmm. what happens traditionally is I take my C sharp, Java, C, C plus plus code, whatever it is. I run it through a compiler that takes that code and outputs like lots and lots of these tiny little instructions. That's it. So it goes to like intermediary language, and then from intermediary language, my understanding is it drops down to assembly after that. What's assembler after that? Right, but at the end of the day, it's assembler. Right? It's it's these little instructions, like yeah, uh, and, and the instructions are very very simple. They're like move this piece of memory onto the CPU. Yeah. Move the next piece of memory onto the CPU. Compare yes. those pieces of memory. Uh, you know, the result, the CPU has a kind of fixed structure which says the result of that compare will be in, in register one. Then you say, if register one is greater than zero, like fetch this piece of memory. If it's less than zero, fetch this other piece of memory. That's assembly language, right? Everything kind of in our sort of Intel world runs like yeah. that today. Yeah, there, correct. There, there were actual machines. So perhaps you could just think of it along uh, as JavaScript, right? There were actual hardware machines that were built that ran, and we can use JavaScript, JavaScript functions at the silicon level. So maybe somebody took V8 oh, and, and, and built, instead of the V8 machine having to translate the JavaScript into assembly, Mm-hmm. Uh, through whatever chain and however many steps there were. It just ran the V8, the JavaScript, directly on the CPU. Okay. Like, what a cool idea, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, there was a company called Symbolics, and they they ran Lisp as the machine code. So you, you booted up this machine, and literally from the BIOS prompt, you were in a Lisp environment. Okay, so, uh, uh, so this might be off topic. So if it is, you know, I'll, I'll shut up. I apologize. So when, when Ruby guys often talk uh, about, so if they're running their code in the JVM, so it's the Java virtual machine. Right. And every now and then people will make, you know, references to different virtual machines. Yeah. Is, is, is that, is that kind of what it is, right? So, so the code will get converted to Java type thing. Well, you know, um, you know, you're doing web development, right? And you go. Mm-hmm. I think you were talking about inspecting your JavaScript code on one of the podcasts previously. So yeah, you yeah. went into yeah. Chrome or Firefox, and you opened up the inspector, and, and yep. it drops you into a JavaScript prompt, right? Correct. Yeah. And that 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 prompt is connected to the JavaScript virtual machine for that page inside the browser. So each each page inside a browser has this lovely sandboxed virtual machine. Mm-hmm. And that virtual machine is an instance of V8 or what's it, Spider Monkey in Firefox? I think it is. That's it. That's yeah. it. Um, and you know, so you, you you type some JavaScript into that. You say console.log hello world. You type it into that box, and then the console, you know, kind of sends or the little box in Firefox sends that to the virtual machine. It gets compiled and executed, and the output comes back to your little browser window. Yeah. Now, now that that virtual machine inside, the, <coughs> excuse me, of course has to go through this whole process we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. It has to take that JavaScript and at some point turn it into machine code, mm-hmm. get it executed on the CPU, like the actual physical hardware. So ins- yeah. inside Firefox or Chrome, there's a model of a machine. It's not the actual machine. It's all software, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a machine that can accept JavaScript and respond with JavaScript. Um, 
but that machine has to back end onto an Intel Core i7 chip or whatever's in your machine that you're running this on. So there's that layer. Now, imagine that there wasn't that layer, that that Chrome could just give the JavaScript directly to a JavaScript CPU. That's that's what we're trying to get at. Like, there yeah. were machines that, that could do that. That did that, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so... And, and that was... Some, some interesting experiments happened uh, in, in the late 70s and early 80s around some really crazy CPU architectures. Um, I, I think today we, we're a little bit um, kind of overwhelmed by just Intel CPUs everywhere and we, we don't get kind of exposed to all the different things. I mean, probably the only other CPU you've heard of is the PowerPC, right? Be the ARM... The arm oh, on right, the, yeah, Raspberry Pi, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, like so Xbox. It's, it's pretty those, much it, yeah. That's pretty yeah. much it. The, 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 those are the only two that I've really heard of. Yeah, and if you go back to the 80s, I mean, there were a lot of CPUs. You know, there were the Sun Sparks, the Deck Alphas, there was MIPS. There were entire companies uh, running, like, various lines. I mean, Apple originally ran on all the PowerPC stuff. Um, so it, it was quite interesting. But but we digress. Um yeah, okay, so the functional stuff, you want to keep them pure, you've got immutability. Immutability leads to this idea of being able to express time in your uh, system. And we've, where, where, where else did we go? Oh, yes, then we've got this idea of list comprehensions. So, and you were saying that, you know, if, if you do say filter collection, um, that it's just going to be a for loop at the end of the day. It's just only like, for loop, grab the result of that for loop and pop it into a new collection. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I'm thinking in my head. Yeah. yeah you, you see the implementation as, as that. And um, it's, it's actually a really interesting exercise to go and look at how some of these things are implemented because there's some lovely, very elegant solutions to those kinds of things that don't involve uh, for loops and you know, while loops and so forth uh, being compiled onto machine code. It's not all the same, I think, which is where, where functional stuff gets really interesting because it brings, because of these fundamental differences, it brings a lot of different ideas to the table. Uh, you know, one of the things that I came across initially was that a lot of the patterns that I'd gotten used to doing OO stuff were largely only relevant to OO languages. In other words, the patterns were there because of problems with OO languages. And a lot of those patterns, like the visitor pattern, take the visitor pattern, for example. You guys are aware of the visitor pattern? In, in all honesty, no. Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard of the visitor pattern before. Oh, okay. <laughs> the visitor Sorry, pattern. Leslie. <laughs> Arch, you're not, you're not getting that job at the App Factory, man. <laughs> Crap. Yeah. Like the visitor pattern is just, it's not uh, something that you have to have a pattern about in a functional language. It's literally just map. You know, in a functional language, you can say map this function across this collection. It's the most natural thing in the world. We've got map in JavaScript as well. Um, yeah, you so can, yeah. Jo- so I'm JavaScript it works is a, in a similar way. Is a functional language, right? Yes. Yeah. If um, you want fun- it to be. <laughs> well, it, it's always surprised me that uh, people try to do classes and stuff in JavaScript to begin with, when it has such lovely functional parts to it. 
Um, but, uh, but, I mean, I think this is an interesting conversation, and maybe we should just uh, leave it there for today for the for the listeners who I worry think that so. this yeah, podcast goes we'll on do for too we'll, long. We'll, yeah, we'll, 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 get, we'll get hold of somebody who does JavaScript in a functional way and have a discussion about this. I'll add that to the episode list now. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we can say goodbye to the guys who want to go at this point of the podcast. So, Cue yeah, the I, outro I think, music. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so we need jingles. That's the other thing we need. Um, just but just before we do that, very quickly, um, I don't know if you – I think let's do our picks now. So you know, this to me, the, the podcast is going in a direction I didn't foresee when we started, and I'm really enjoying it. So – I want this to carry on, but I'm 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 very aware that a lot of people don't like it when podcasts go over 45 minutes. I think for those people that have listened to this point, I think they would have actually gotten something quite interesting out of it if they already didn't have a an you know an understanding of some functional concepts. So I think let's just quickly do the picks now, um, and then I'm happy to continue this conversation for a while. We're um, going to the after dark. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Um, Peter, have you got any picks for this week? Oh, jeez, you put me around the spot, man. I did, bro. I <laughs> did. Jeez. Um, just check quick. Um, I actually do have a pick, um, and it's something I tweeted about today. Let me just see if I can find it quick. Um, okay. It's basically um, like uh, f- kind of like a couple of problems that people run into um, like a new developers in, in Go, gotchas and common mistakes in Golang. Um, okay. Yeah, so yeah. It's called the Fifty Shades of Go. If you, uh, 50, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Go. I just want to see. Okay. Yeah. So if you Google Fifty Shades of Go, uh, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. Yep. That's um, it. It it goes um, it goes along and like just describes some of the common mistakes that people run into from total beginner to like a intermediate beginner and then an advanced beginner. And it's a, cool. quite a cool thing because. I've run into a couple of them. I'm, I'm no Go programmer by any stretch of anybody's imagination, but uh, I kind of enjoy the language. And mm-hmm. um, that was that was some very cool uh, bits of information that I found. Okay, awesome. Len, uh, picks from your side? Um, just wanted to say for the listeners, where do they find the show notes? Um, so the show notes are currently hosted on the um, ZA Dev Chat com, but if you really want to get the pics um, there is tweeted out on the ZA Dev Chat um, Twitter account which is just at ZA Dev Chat so awesome. that's probably the quickest and easiest way quickest and easiest way to get them yeah cool. alright um, I'd like to just recommend this book called JavaScript Allongé Allongé is a, a way to make uh, what we call an Americano it's a long coffee <laughs> Um, by uh, this uh, chap, Regenwald. Um, it's it's really a lovely book, uh, and it approaches JavaScript purely from a functional uh, side of things. Um, it's one of the. Okay. It's just a really fun little book. Um, you know, you can go to Lean Pub and sort of uh, pay whatever you feel like for the book, uh, and that's just you know leanpubcom slash allonge a l l o n g e. Uh, I've put the note in the chat there. Awesome. That's that's great. Um, so so just that one for this week, yeah? That's it. Cool. Um, from my side, I subscribe to Code School for the month again. So I tend to subscribe to Code School whenever there's something that I really want to learn. I've been running through their Ember.js course. As always, the guys at Code School have done 
an incredible job. Um, I'm absolutely loving the course. Um, as second pick is something I actually found just before um, just before we got load shed tonight. Um, it's something I'm going to carry on watching tonight. Is there's a bunch of screencasts on the Code School website as well, and I've actually been watching the founders talk by Greg Pollock, who started um, Code School, and you know the things that he's learned starting a company and you know his successes and his failures and i'm only about 15 minutes into it but man i i'm i'm really enjoying that so the ember j is a course on code school and then greg pollock's founder first founder talk on code school as well um i think that i'll and i'll check i'll see if i can find it um i know one of his founders founders talks are free on youtube um, it's about an hour long, and again, he's just discussing all sorts of stuff. So those are my two picks for this week. So, yeah, thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, we are now going to continue the conversation. So for for those that are keen to something new that we're going to be doing going forward with the show now is we'll end the show, and then you know we'll carry on geeking out and talking about other stuff. And, you know, if you want to listen to the show, you know, further, then, you know, you'll get some more stuff. Len, getting massive feedback from your side. I don't know what happened there. He's moving the fridge. <laughs> yeah, the air conditioner kicked in here, so I'll be oh, back in like two minutes. I just have to go sort it out. See you okay, guys in awesome. a sec. Okay, cool. Thanks, Len. Yeah, okay, cool. Um Oh, dude, this is this. Is, like, I don't know how much you're getting out of this, um, Peter. Oh, nothing. I know all of it already. Yeah. <laughs> I I know, I know, but that's but that's why you and Len are here. You and Len are here to teach me the stuff. No, oh, man, I'm joking. I'm joking. That's uh, <laughs> um, this. Uh, um, there's something to be said about the um, when somebody asks you a question and you think mm. you know the answer, and then you answer it and you go, hmm, yeah, I probably could have done a better job. <laughs> yeah, no. So I mean, I, I'm I'm quite in, I'm quite enjoying the. So I mean, you know, I mean, the the only immutability stuff I've ever seen really was the stuff that you were showing me a while ago with uh, with the Venn store, um, and that to me just blew my mind and was awesome and amazing, and it's still awesome and amazing. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm giving a talk. Um, Yes, on the ninth of June in mm-hmm. Germany. Um, yes, and I will be there. Developer user group. So, I suppose, um, I suppose, um, like event store, basically, or events itself, mm-hmm. basically, is the whole point of immutability is the fact that you can't change them, and they give you a set of nice guarantees. Um, and so you've got a full history of everything that's happened. Correct, uh, because uh, you capture change. And um, the time that Len is talking about is extremely important because the event is a, a set of information at a specific point in time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to your talk. No pressure, Peter. <laughs> um, cool, and- I'll be there too. I'm back. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. so much better. <laughs> yeah, it's it sounded it sounded like a Boeing landed behind you or something. It was just like, what the hell happened? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think these um, mics are really sensitive to that kind of high frequency sound, you know, like air- aircon motors or whatever it is. 
That's for sure. That's for sure. Okay, cool. So we just finished um, discussing the idea of mapping over um, over a, a collection, um, and I don't really can't really remember where we were going with this exactly, but the idea of, of mapping over taking data from one collection, you know, mapping over it and and pulling that the data that is produced by that by that filter, then gets returned in a new collection. Correct. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think what's hard to kind of grasp in a functional language is like, oh, my God, like we're going to run out of space, right? Because, <laughs> you know, I've got yeah. this collection of like a thousand things and then I run like map this function over it, map that function. Next thing I've got a collection of 100,000. You know, I've done 10 things to this uh, collection. I've, I've now got 100,000 elements like just on this like simple thing and you know where on earth am I storing them and how on earth is that all kind of working in memory I don't know if, if that bothers you guys but it certainly bothered me when I when I heard about this and I was trying to wrap my head around going oh yeah that's kind of nuts because I'll, I'll run out of memory really quickly yeah well at least you would have in the 80s but you know I, I still I still get what you're saying yeah I mean we, we get machines running out of memory all the time I mean you know, um, how, how do you guys think that works? I mean, or does that not kind of bother you? <laughs> so, so, in all honesty, it's not something that's ever that's ever bugged me. Um, <laughs> having having only ever done you know basic CRUD web apps, mm. at most, I think we we, we had a, a severe problem on an application that I worked on um, that memory wasn't being released by I think it was a reporting framework we were using and our app was spiking at like 3.2 gig memory usage and at that point IIS would just do a recycle of the app pool everybody would get disconnected and you know Bob's your auntie we're still good to go so uh, servers running out of memory has never really been a problem for me in my career mm. it, it, it's something I've always been cognizant of but it's nothing that it's nothing that's ever really bugged me Yep. Um, so, yeah, underneath the covers in these immutable data structures, there's some really nice, elegant stuff that is trying to compact the memory, if you want to call it. So if 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 the same value 5 exists in this collection, um, then the new collections will still, and, and, and 5 exists in the new collection as well, the new collection will still just reference the same 5 in the old collection, if that makes any sense. So, yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so like, so let's say we run this map function over a collection, and only half the values change. Mm -hmm. Then we'll have two lists, but the second list will share half its storage with the first list, which is really nice and elegant. Um, and then, then of course, a lot of the immutable stuff, the the if no one's referring to the first list, we're going to garbage collect it, right? If we release all references to that first list, yeah, um, you know, so it's it's very interesting to note that garbage collection comes from the original list idea of list back in 1950, whatever it was. Um, so it's it's a really old idea, and you know, it's taken us a long time to get back back to it. But um, but yeah, okay. Um, so I think that that's the kind of overview of of the functional stuff, and we can get into more specific ideas um, 
One of the things that Lisp has that very few other languages have is this idea of macros, which is an, a very, very powerful idea, but it's, it's quite advanced. But essentially, it's the ability for functions to, at, at runtime, for functions to write new functions, you know, to, to actually mess with the, the syntax of the running program and, and almost derive new functions based on some input values. So this is how Skynet was born in the Terminator movies, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we're still uh, far off from AI, and I mean that's another very, very interesting topic. But you know, to really have something that is um, uh, an, an AI situation. Oh, okay. See, so, yeah, Peter's off. Peter's, Peter's had to duck. Peter, dude, thanks thanks for joining. It was good to have you back, dude. Awesome. Yeah. Um, um, by the way, we should seriously consider having this conversation on Slack as well for a point of reference um, because I think there's some very valuable information coming out of this. But uh, mm. I look forward to looking, listening to the After Dark uh, part of the episode. Um, yeah. Very keen to sure. see where this goes. Um, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll chat dude, to you guys soon. Have a, have a good evening. Cheers, awesome. buddy. Cheers, man. Hey, Take care, bye. Bye. Cheers, Len. Cool. Um, so the idea of macros sounds sounds interesting. And yeah, I, I think that is way too in depth for for us to like mm. get started on that now. But but let's um, let's come back to where you you know your yeah. initial idea. You said so. Cool. I've got yeah. you know this C sharp stack. I've got IIS. I'm writing this CRUD app. Could I do that in Erlang in in Clojure? You know. Yeah. Um, of course. I mean that's a very natural application for those languages. You know. It, Erlang can talk uh, TCP. There okay. are HTTP servers in in Erlang um, in Clojure. So you would simply start an HTTP server, and your instead of having a class like a you know model view controller or whatever, you would have a function that answers a GET request. Okay, um, it's pretty much as simple as that. So, you know, the question I'm about to ask might be exceptionally ignorant. Um, and no problem. I, there I, are no I, stupid I, questions. So I have no problems showing off, you know, that I can be a very ignorant person because that's the only way I learn. Um, it just seems to me that the number of people doing functional, well, doing work in functional languages mm. seems to either be exceptionally low or seems to be on the decrease. Like I know more PHP developers than functional developers, and I'm not taking shots at PHP now, but there are just more JavaScript devs, C-sharp devs, Ruby devs, even Elixir devs, which, I mean, and I get that Elixir is functional, but it's like the new functional, right? So if functional languages could still do all of this stuff, why haven't we been using it? Or is it a case of, you know, why did we not do test-driven development between the early 90s and the early 2000s? Did we just forgot about it? or um, I, I think a couple of things, and we're kind of going into history now, but yeah, yeah. You know, if, if we look back at the sort of 50s and the 60s, um, people realized that they could make an awful lot of money out of so, this thing called software, out of these weird things called computers. You know, if, you, if you go back to the 60s and you have a look at IBM, IBM was spending an awful lot of money making mainframes, right? Those were sort of the only viable like, kind of business computers that were out there. Oh, 
Those were those computers that took up an entire basement. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, they, they, they cost, you know, uh, the, the sort of GDP of a small country. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and there were estimates that, you know, the whole world would need like 15 of them or something. Mm. Um, yeah, that was all that was ever going to be, get going. Um, yeah. You know, at the same time, there was a very interesting academic world coming out of California and Berkeley University and, you know, guys like Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie, um, building kind of just out in the open, building Unix, really, and building the C language. Um, okay. You know, and then that, that kind of grew up and kind of got formalized. And I think, you know, we hit the 80s and, and the vendors really took over, you know, especially with the PC revolution and, and Microsoft's ascendancy, um, mm-hmm. just to become so dominant. I mean, there was a time when people were scared of Microsoft. You know, if, if you started a product or you tried to do anything, you know, Microsoft would just crush you. I don't know if you remember companies like Ashton Tate and Borland and So unfortunately, that, you know, I, th- I think that's where my age shows is that I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a young man. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, for the first part of my life, I, I grew up in the Lowfeld. So, I mean, the first time I programmed something i was i was in college already i mean i went to college to become a linux administrator because you know that's where the money is yeah um yeah. <laughs> and i did a, i did a i wanted to do java and i got told sorry you're too stupid to do java um your your marks say you're not allowed to and i had to do vb uh vb5 i think i started with and then like halfway through the course i got upgraded to vb6 but you know that's 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 besides the point the first time I wrote Hello World and something popped up on the machine, I was like, okay, whoa, yeah. you know, stop the press. This shit is insanely awesome. <laughs> I can make I can make the computer do what I want it to do. Yeah, now um, you understand it. Yeah, that is the yeah, essence of programming, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, the the only stuff I remember about Borland is I remember – so my, my uncle is an Oracle DBA. Um, I don't know if he was something before he was an Oracle DBA, but he's been a DBA for as long as I can remember. Right. And he, he always said to me that there's two types of computer people. There's the people that fix the computers and there's the people that program the computers. Right. And the programmers are the weird guys because they go to work and they program all day and then they go home and they program all night. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's a strange bunch of people. And, and, I, and gave, now we sit around late at night on podcasts, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he gave me a Borland C++ book with oh. a CD. And I basically wrote out the C++ code. I had no clue what I was doing. The calculator worked. Mm. And then I forgot about it. Uh, okay. So, so that's all I remember about, about Borland, really. You know, right. Micros- Microsoft was the platform you needed to play games. Right. Well, that's I mean, all let, I knew to, about to, to cut a long story short, I mean, you're asking, like, why aren't the functional languages like, more relevant? So, um, sorry, thanks. <laughs> uh, we we mentioned IBM, and one of IBM's like very famous marketing tactics tactics was this thing called fear, uncertainty, and doubt. FUD. So what they would do is, you know, anybody tried to do something that was not IBM. I mean, there was a case where one of their hardware engineers left, and he built a kind of better mainframe for half the price, and IBM just said, "Well, you know." do you want to trust that guy or do you want to trust IBM? You know, we've been doing this for a long time. What if things go wrong? You know, this whole fear-driven stuff was sort of almost invented, if you want, by IBM. Okay. My, Microsoft learned it from IBM. Yeah. Um, and perfected it. 
Well, you know, they, they certainly did very, very well for themselves doing that kind of thing. Um, and, and it kind of became endemic. So long story short, we, we've had massive wars of the vendors. And the vendors were just pushing whatever technology that they could out there. You know, um, Anders Helsberg, the guy who did C-sharp, is now doing uh, mm-hmm. TypeScript. He came from Borland, right? Uh, oh, he, he, he wrote Delphi at Borland, yeah. So he sort of oh, wow. he took Object okay. Pascal. and um, It's quite interesting. If you go and look at uh, Turbo Pascal and Delphi, you can see the roots of like a lot of the, the things that he did in C-sharp. Um, of course, he was That's growing right. and doing more stuff, but you know, he yeah. was the kind of guy. So Microsoft got him, and um, Microsoft wanted a, a platform. And it's, all, it's always about platforms. If you've got people mm. on platforms, you kind of own them. They have to buy your tools, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. That's kind of changing now with things, you know, the open source stuff, which is – yeah. I, 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 I'm sure there's another podcast there called What on Earth is Microsoft Up To? Because <laughs> to me, <laughs> it makes, it makes no enough sense. Time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe let's get Rob back and talk to him about it. But mm. – yeah. Yeah. So, you know, essentially these, you know, languages like Lisps and your Haskells and whatever got relegated to kind of academic worlds. Um, there was a very interesting moment, though, when Yahoo bought the first online shop uh, written by, what's his name, Paul... Oh, it'll come to me in a second. Um, but the first online shop on the Internet was actually written in Lisp. Interestingly enough, okay. wow. and um, yeah, you know Hacker News, Y Combinator, mm-hmm. News not Y Combinator. Yeah, yeah. So that's written in a language called Arc. Oh, Paul Graham is his name, and Paul Graham's done a lot of uh, sort of evangelizing of the functional languages for a long time now, and, okay. and is one of the big um, kind of I guess reasons why we're starting to see uh, more functional stuff. Um, and then you know. I guess Java. So, okay, like let's just get another perspective on the industry. What do you think the the most sort of popular languages are out there? Like in terms of the most developers. Well, just thinking, just GitHub wise, right? You know, because GitHub is everything. Um, I saw a chart now with the most popular languages for last year, and I know it did surprise me. I think I think C or C plus plus is still one of the top languages which was very surprising uh, and you've got some of the usual suspects lower down um, right you know well, the javascript the rubies the yeah so i, th- I think J- uh, github is kind of um, an interesting place but it is an island yes uh, it's, it's yeah. a very no, it's, it's a very well let's call it a small continent <laughs> yeah but but not <laughs> everything is on github yeah, correct. Yeah, so that w- one of the ones that I find interesting is that Tyob Index. I'll just paste the link for you. Oh yes, yeah, I haven't know. looked at that in years. Yeah, yeah. but uh, oops, <coughs> I think one of the most interesting things about it is that they've just they've had a methodology, and they've stuck to that methodology, you know, which is kind of counting number of job postings and uh, Google searches using Google Trends, whatever, and they've got a way to bring mm-hmm. it all together. But according to them, the biggest languages, and this has been pretty constant for a long, long time, uh, the top language in the world is always between Java and C. Yeah, uh, you know, and and every now and again, C will be the like number one language in the world for for two months, and then Java will take it back. You know, and then if you go down the list, it's it's C, C plus plus. Objective C is now number four. 
How kind of crazy so is that? Yeah. That like, does surprise me. No, that's really just the insane really like uh, revolution of of iOS and and the mm. Mac stuff. You yeah, know, uh, you know, C sharps coming up. But I mean, there's crazy stuff on this list, like Visual Basic, Cobol. Still, yeah, PHP, Cobol, the Perl. Oh. There is an awful lot of R, you know, the statistical language. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 ABAP I mean, is on the list. So <laughs> I've nuts. never heard of ABAP before. MATLAB, from what I understand, is like a maths library that researchers use. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how close I am on that, but I have heard of MATLAB before. But to see Delphi um, on the list. Delphi, Perl, and Visual Basic are still out there. So, but, but I mean, what's always interesting to think about is just think about C for a minute. Like, do you know any C programmers? I know one. I know yeah. one. one. Okay, it's 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 the like it's always one of the like most popular languages in the world. So you, you kind of have to think about that for a bit, you know, because yeah. the, just the sheer amount of stuff that's written in C. I mean, we're talking Java here. We're talking like you know Amazon, and I mean, how much stuff gets written in Java? Masses of stuff. An equal amount of stuff gets written in C. You know, your washing machine, your car, the projector, like the low so level, all, all the embedded stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know that other world, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that the other world that you don't see. You know, well, we're back to kind of your original thing about web apps. I mean, that's that's another world of like low level stuff that's just. Everywhere, uh, microprocessors are in everything, um, and and C C will probably be here forever. There's no, you know, it is so fundamental to so many industries that it'll never ever go away. Such a simple little language, um, highly recommended that everybody should at least learn it. Uh, it's it's the language that will uh, break your mind dealing with pointers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you want to understand memory and how memory works. Go learn C. Yeah, um, so I've been I've been told that before. Yeah, um, and I haven't made the time. Yeah, I'm a bad yeah. programmer. C is a very very simple language. I think it's got twenty keywords. Um, that's it. It has no libraries, modules, na- nothing. It is very very simple. You can literally learn it in an afternoon. Wow. Um, okay. There's nothing to it. I mean, you you got to wonder why a language has been around for you know what's it now. Uh, a long time, like <laughs> fifty years or something silly. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's over fifty so, years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you know. Going back to your original question, the the landscape's kind of dominated by the big vendors, uh, the Java stuff. The C stuff escaped early. That's the contribution of of the Unix world. Mm-hmm. Um, that grew up into kind of C C plus plus. So, I mean, if you take C and C plus plus. That's the dominant programming environment on the planet um, by, by like, a, a large margin. Um, you know, for just looking at the Tyab index, I mean, we're talking um, 23% of the world is C, C++, you know, versus uh, 16% Java and down, like, then the rest is down below 5%. Um, oh, it's madness. It yeah. is madness. And and first, sorry, I had to pop open the COBOL info just for uh, COBOL actually peaked at the start of this year. Yep, there was a massive <laughs> jump upwards in COBOL. <laughs> I yeah. don't, wh- why? Why would anybody do that to themselves? I've seen a I've seen a COBOL code base once, 
And I literally saw the code base because the person was carrying it around with them, printed out in like one of these boxes, you know, one of these paper ream boxes. Yeah. Uh, look, it was impressive. I mean, this lady knew exactly where where everything was going. Yeah. But, you know, it blew my mind to actually see a code base printed out on paper. Uh, <laughs> I, I ran a team once and we, we worked in a kind of COBOL-like language. And one of the coding metrics that I used was that if you printed your program out and we held it up against the wall, it couldn't be taller than me. <laughs> if it was taller than me, you had to refactor it into like smaller pieces, you know. It's a good thing you're a tall man. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah it, it's interesting to to think of how many mainframes and machines that are out there behind your everyday services that are mm. running COBOL. Um, there are mainframes that run, every bank in this country runs on a mainframe. Yeah. Um, the air traffic control systems run on mainframes. Um, I don't know why, but I saw at one of the data centers, um, I think it's Cell C have a mainframe. I'm not sure what they're doing with it. I think it's running their accounting package. <laughs> but like, there's an entire section of the data center that's just running this big uh, IBM uh, system uh, 390, I think it is. I forget what it is. Um, okay. And that's probably all COBOL. And most of the insurance companies are running COBOL. Or, or RPG on the AS400 somewhere inside. So, yeah, like, it's, you know, and it's absolutely horrible. I mean, you would be absolutely, like, freaked out by how uh, retarded those systems are. <laughs> well, they're, they're big batch processing systems. There's nothing, there's no intelligence in them whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. But, um, but, I, but I think that the, you know, the functional stuff that's coming back is, uh, from a couple of places, Ruby and JavaScript is one, um, mm. and and also it's just what 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 I found, especially doing functional programming, was that the number of lines of code. And I know you say it's not a good metric, but it there is a way. To, you know, it is important. the The number of lines of code in a program that I wrote in a functional language was much much less than and, you know, anything else I'd ever done before. It kind of freaked me out for a bit. I thought, this is not enough. You mm. know, I'd written like 2,000 lines of code and the thing worked. And you know, if I looked at the Java version, it was 10,000 lines of code. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people about F-Sharp as well, yeah. is that they're, they're, taking, they're taking their apps, converting it to F-Sharp. And I, I will often say that lines of code is not a metric, but wow, when somebody takes a thousand lines of code and cuts it down to like forty, you kind of have to go. What? <laughs> How? Well, I, I, um, who was it? Steve Yeager has a saying, and, and I completely agree with him. He said, "Look, there's one unavoidable piece of complexity in coding. You know, no matter what you do, no matter how good your design is, the unavoidable thing is the um, number of lines of code you've got. Mm. If you've got a million lines of code, that's you know, it takes management. You don't just mm. uh, kind of mess around with a million lines of code, as opposed to, as you said, four, 40 lines or 100. That's very, very different. But I, I think the, the place the metric's not interesting is uh, lines of code over time as a measure of programmer productivity. Yes. That, that's yeah. not that, like, kind of interesting, because often that's negative. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely, I completely. Agree but but I've I've heard some of the things of uh, guys doing Xbox games in C sharp, converting to F sharp, and I think they they dropped to thirty percent of the code base size. 
exactly the same game. And, and they were just uh, much happier because they could now deal with, you know, 100,000 lines of code instead of 300,000 lines. Mm. Well, and it, it, it makes, especially if you're coming, if you're new to a code base, right? Yeah. Somebody introduces you to a code base and it's a, it's a 300,000 line code base and they introduce you to one that's only 100,000. It's okay. You know, the 300,000 line code base is intimidating. It doesn't matter how it's structured. Uh, when there's that much, there's always that, that worry of, you know, I'm making a change here. Do I actually know what the effect is? The smaller the, the actual code base, kind of the more, I'm not going to say the more confidence you can have, the more tests you got, the more confident you can be. Um, but if, if, well, I, well, I, I feel more than more the tests, if I can hold the, the system in my head, mm. that's much, much better. Or I can hold that part. So if, if you give me a part of the system to work on and it's got 2,000 lines of code, that's mm. great. I can deal with that. You know, If you give me a part yeah. of the system that's got 50,000 lines of code, I have to, you know, give me two days. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just going to take me a while to, like, figure out where everything is, just to be able to come back to you and say, okay, like, what did you want me to do now? I know where everything is. Now I can begin. Whereas 2,000 lines of code, I can, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, I'm like, okay. I, I got it. Like I see what's happening here, um, and and I can I can add to it. I can take away from it. I can mess with it. Definitely. All right. Well, I need to I need to head off. Um, I have to be up early again, and I've just noticed that it's quarter to eleven already. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the mate. joys the joys of driving long distance to work every day. Cool. Lynn, thank you very much, dude. I really appreciate it. That, that I really didn't expect the podcast to go this way. Um, and I've picked up a hell of a lot from it. So I hope any, everybody listening also picked up something. Thanks, dude. Awesome. Thank you, man. Cool. Have a good evening. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.